Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we dive deep into the roots of our dominant technologies and explore the forgotten histories of some of the most important figures who shaped their development. We are all here learning together. How did big tech become an engine for inequality? What are the limits and possibilities for using technology to push racial justice? We are privileged to explore these questions with NYU Vice Provost and author of Black Software, The Internet and Racial Justice, Dr. Charlton McElwain, in conversation with digital media culture expert, Dr. Jamie Cohn. This discussion was recorded live on Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. You can view the full archived live stream of this podcast on YouTube. I started off really with a very straightforward and concrete question, which was, how do we explain Black Lives Matter? How do we explain such a powerful um, uh, movement for racial justice that was in large part fueled by uh, digital activism, um, by digital platforms and technologies that folks made use of? Um, and so I originally I set out to write that book. Um, to do that, I went on a journey, and that journey continued long past um, where I had first intended. Um, and that started with, you know, at least having the, the sense to know things like this, movements like this, uh, particularly those with such uh, power and impact, don't come uh, uh, sort of overnight, and they're not made and come just out of the blue. So, uh, so I figured at the very least, um, the, the roots of Black Lives Matter and what we might call digital activism uh, probably has something to do with the 1990s, uh, where the web came online and so forth. And so that's kind of where I started. Um, and then it was just a series of finding people, talking to people, and every person I found had a story. Um, and that story inevitably led to another person and inevitably learn, uh, uh, leaned uh, further and further back in time. Uh, so before I knew it, I found myself in the early 90s, then the mid 80s, then the late 70s. And at a certain point, I said, look, I'm sure if I let myself and allow myself to go back just a bit, a little bit longer um, to the 60s and to that moment we know was filled with so much um, interaction between uh, civil rights and as well the kind of birthplace of modern computing as we know it, that I'll, I'll probably find something. Um, and I did. And the culmination of all of that is what became Black Software, which had then spun into not just a story about how do we explain Black Lives Matter, but how do we explain the long relationship of Black people and their relationship to uh, technology and the internet uh, over this 50, 50 plus uh, year of time. That's incredible. So I actually want to build off of that because very often the history of digital media, I teach a course called History of Digital Media, and the dominant history is written in a very specific and streamlined way that elides or omits Black history within that. And so it always, your, your title Black Software is great because your, one of your characters, uh, if you could talk a little bit about the people you interviewed, mm -hmm. write software at the very beginning. And that's something that wasn't really thought of in the history of digital media. It comes down to a lot of the very technical terms. You, you mentioned like the infrastructure itself. And right. those, the, here's one of the interesting things is that the infrastructure wasn't, was exclusive. Building the infrastructure was an exclusive act. It was comes mm -hmm. from DARPA and then moves its way into the technological spaces. And your, your story illuminates some, the way some black people were able to actually become part of the way that the internet was evolved, but is, aren't spoken about as much as it, they should be in the present. Yeah, indeed. And I, you know, I was struck very early on by something that like really just kind of hit me over the head. And it was looking at a, um, it's like an encyclopedia of black inventors. I think it was something like that. It was written by uh, uh, black African-American scholars, um, all the way through, but I looked and found the entry for internet. And I remember saying something like, you know, um, nothing in our evidence shows that African-Americans or black people had anything to do with the, the invention or development of the internet. And I thought for a minute, like, wow, that is a profound statement to make that here's a group of people completely 
disconnected from, not included in this thing. And I thought that cannot be true. Uh, That cannot be an only... It could only be true in one way, and that is, uh, as you sort of mentioned, which is that we think about the internet very narrowly as infrastructure and the technical, uh, you know, the wires, the pipes, the hardware, uh, the software, and that leads us inevitably to, you know, the the wizards and so forth that we uh, uh, call them that are exclusively uh, white, exclusively male almost, and and say these are the people that brought you and invented the internet and so where my story ultimately began to pick up was finding people um, who very clearly were part of that story but whose narratives uh no one had ever heard um and i asked myself and i asked them often you know you ever talk to anyone about this anyone ever write about it and folks are like no, or some of the folks that were high profile and um, you know built uh, businesses and so forth, uh, sort of said, "Yeah, we were on people's radar for a moment, but other than that, um, time passed, and certainly no credit is ever given to uh, those stories." But, but I was struck too, and this book ended up kind of turning into something very different for me because of these individual stories, which I just, I fell in love with and had to, you know, ultimately say, look, I can't write a book like I might normally write as an academic. I really just have to tell this story about, you know, someone like Derek Brown, who, you know, discovers, uh, um, you know, as a 10, 11, uh, or 10 or 11 year old, um, begs his mom to get a new computer and he loves baseball and somehow discovers a spreadsheet uh, uh, application and uh, falls in love with collecting stats and figuring out how to filter and sort and make predictions about who's going to win the World Series or uh, Cy Young Award or what have you. Um, and that that was an intro point for this particular African-American man early 80s who would ultimately become a very pivotal and significant figure when the web as we know it comes online in the 1990s and so the book is really filled with those stories that i think are what are so important and what have been overlooked um, in this long history of the internet that we write and rewrite and always fail to recognize these folks yeah this is uh, Josh and I actually talked about your book and how much we actually fell in love with the characters when we were like, this yeah, is, and we were also talking about how as a text, it's not like it's quotes are embedded in it. And the stories are told as very much like the, the interviews are incredible. I mean, that's, that's the truth in there is because it has so much uh, visual in it. And to hear the story, like Derek traveling, I forgot how far to go get the Mac computer at the time. And it was like having an actual mechanical keyboard and everything we take for granted in the present of just having these things and like right. Apple now being kind of ubiquitous with culture, <laughs> like digital culture. I'm wearing like an Apple like graphics shirt. And like, it's just um, something that you don't think about where those things came from. And then you don't, we don't really think And what your book works with is like, we don't really think about the people who didn't have the access or the entry points. And so Derek's and curiosity for stats and like, his Excel, Excel spreadsheet and all that work was like an incredible moment of like, well, what can the machine do? And it wasn't just like using it. It was like bending the way that it actually operates. And so that I really enjoyed the way that story progressed over time. It wasn't like something that happened in a moment and then was like, oh, okay, cool. I got to use it. It was like, I want to be part of it. And that was very cool. Like, how did you, when you, so when you're interrogating history and you're going back, did you feel like an excitement of finding like, all of this like illuminating things like did you like oh yeah yeah so what was it yeah. like to when you were doing the research to to go to dig that to do the archaeological work of that yeah it it was bad i mean this is by far the the most fun project i've ever worked on in my my career and it was really because every minute felt like a discovery like this is just stuff i've never known never heard of uh, never had any idea about in some way. And so every time, you know, I dig into a new material, whether it's an archive or 
um, or conversing with, uh, you know, one of the characters um, in the book, um, it turns up something new that's absolutely fascinating. And so I felt always like I was on this kind of winding road, you know, discovering something and then trying to find out where that came from or where that particular story fit in a larger history and connecting this person to that one and, um, you know, making a, a connection between what's going on in Boston, uh, where certain people are and what's happening in uh, Georgia and, um, and, and what that connection is and what that connection is over a 50, 55 year arc of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I mean, it was, it, it, it was fun. Um, I will say, on the other hand, it was the subject of a lot of anxiety <laughs> because <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, you have a contractor write a book um, sure. that comes with, uh, with a, a moment where the publisher expects that you will deliver that book. And, you know, and following these pathways, sometimes it's hard to stop and just write because there's so much to chase down. So that was the anxiety part of it. Um uh, but it was a it was a lot of fun, and and it was a lot of fun mostly because it was a project really about people and and their stories. The technology, while it figures in greatly, was uh, was secondary, um, mm-hmm. and that you know I really fell in love and connected with and felt like I was learning from uh, people who were in my mind uh, giants um, and giants in this historical arc that protects, uh, produced this technology that is, of course, so ubiquitous for us all now. Yeah, that's actually the, the next where I'm going with the next one. So I, I did, my, I, I want to talk to you a bit about the message boards and the BBS uh, mm. and the communities that existed, because I do want to relate this to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement of the present and Black Twitter and how African-American use of the web was really community-oriented in the past, as is in the present, but these the um, my work I, I did um, my dissertation on virtual reality from eighty nine to ninety one, and the majority of my work comes from a message board. I think it's called Sci Virtual Worlds, mm-hmm. and it's where Howard Rheingold, like the guy, the guy who wrote mm-hmm. the book, um, he kind of wrote. I mean, he was, his his book is kind of like chaotic and like just kind of spills the information out. But when you go into the message board there's life. It was like alive oh, yeah. in there. Like everybody, it was just so oh, yeah. much information at once. I had a dissertation over there deadlines like that, but I did want to graduate. So at a certain <laughs> right. point I had to kind of like cut off that. But what did you recognize when you were in the uh, message boards? Did you like kind of discover anything about cultures at the time that should be more like we should maybe focus like uh, an event, uh, like almost like reference that as a historical moment that is alighted by modern history is when we, we kind of gloss over the nineties as like, yeah, the World Wide web was established in 89, 94 browsers made social media. And yeah, right. <laughs> we don't really like think about like how much robustness was that like from AOL 85 to like 95, there was like, mm-hmm. and I know your book doesn't really go in the techniques, but it's really, I want to like, if I had like a grad class or even my class to have the time to do it, your, your book supplements the idea of like, what is a TCP IP? What is a message board? Mm-hmm. They're all in there. It's just discussed in a narrative style. So can right. you tell me about like what it was like to, to find those communities and did it, uh, rec- is there anything recognizable or, or memorable that makes it show something significant to today in the present of that type of community? Yeah. Thanks for that question. There's a, a lot there. And that's, you know, I, I, I feel you on the, I could have gotten lost in that small window of time as well, because there's so much there. Um, And I had access to a lot of folks sort of uh, message board archives and so forth that were fascinating to just peer back into. But there are two points that I'll, I'll make with this. Like, so one was something, uh, a kind of a finding disabusing me of uh, kind of a, a, a principle or way of looking when I went into this project, um, which had a very uh, political kind of orientation. So starting with Black Lives Matter and thinking about activism and trying to trace those roots. And so really putting a a kind of political frame on what I would find. And so when I got to those, that, that bulletin board era and the Afronet and how people were talking and engaging in that space, 
you know, what I found was people were, they may have been interested in politics, but I will say they were a whole lot more interested in, uh, uh, let's say, making a love connection than they were uh, trying to sort out the, the politics of the day. Um, and so what I found was that people were very, they were interested in connecting. And that was the end all be all. You know, we weren't trying to go and solve big problems or do all those things. And that element was there. Don't get me wrong. But people were fascinated that here's a technology that in some very, I don't know, simple ways, um, meaning it didn't have the sort of technical sophistication that it takes to kind of seriously engage this day and know kind of coding and have some engineering background maybe to uh, uh, to do some of these things. It was a, a kind of a low bar. People got into connection with other people. They could engage even, you know, text, um, which was still fascinating, even yeah, right. just text. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I remember talking to several folks during that time saying, you know, look, we, we ran up. I, I remember um, his name was Tyrone Foy. Uh, had a bulletin board out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, um, that was part of the AfroNet and uh, some other networks, Black uh, genealogy networks and so forth. And I remember him saying, you know what, this was so much fun. I got into it and I thought maybe I could make some money. He said at the end of the day, you know, 89, 90, 91, when he started to sort of trail off, like I look back and man, I spent so much more money than I made. And he said, I would do it all over again. It was well worth it. Yeah. And it was because it enabled a connection that was valuable and just connection for the sake of a connection and connection with other uh, Black folks. And so, you know, I, your, your question makes me think of uh, my good friend, Andre Brock, who is at mm -hmm. uh, Georgia Tech and also has a very great book out right now. Called yeah, we had him on uh, two weeks ago. Did you really? Oh, yeah. so you, you <laughs> got it. talking about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and part of this is because this is the conversation we've often had where he says, you know, sort of, look, you, we shouldn't go in thinking that these kind of platforms are there simply for what we can derive for them in terms of political outcomes or what have you, that they are there for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so we'd had that conversation before I really had gotten into the meat and the book, meat of the book. And as I got there, I was like, oh, yeah, he was he was right. And that's what everybody was saying. Like, look, I just I got to talk to this fine woman in California and I'm going to figure out a way to make a trip out there soon. You know, and that was uh, that was the value. That was a great part of the book, too, when um, it kind of goes into the message boards of it. it, it the, the book weaves the, this history because it, it kind of goes back and, and dabbles in the, the tiny micro political pieces until it becomes very political in the nineties. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things was like this anecdote, which was like when two people have a computer, they, they use it to communicate. And right. then, and then you notice that these message boards like show up and that was a cute moment where it was just like, people were like, wait, I want to know where they went. Can somebody find this person that I saw <laughs> in the mo mo in this message board? And it was, I, it was never a moment of innocence, but it was always a moment of curiosity. And so we actually spoke to Dr. Brock about uh, creative misuse, is that um, oftentimes black indigenous and people of color, like they, the usage of the internet or the existing tools is creatively misused and then appropriated by the corporations. It's mm -hmm. lifted out of those spaces to say, oh, well this works because uh, the next question I have is about content. I, I, I remember there's, whether it was Afronet or one of the other devices, one of the things that presaged our current moment was this consideration of content. And it's like something that a lot of people, very many people in the 90s, weren't thinking about content as a product. They were thinking more of a, a communicative or attached space. And it's interesting to me because it's like almost like the, the book taps into this where it's that could have been lifted to become our present day internet. Like that is something that is very clearly, very specific to a moment. Afronet itself, the entire systems that were built. And now it's like by aligning or emitting those histories, it's kind of like there's not credit given. So it's like the book does the work too, of making sure we know that that, that idea of content, which is now mm -hmm. just everything, including what we're doing now, is kind of like 
taken for granted, but that started somewhere. So when you discovered that, was that like a shocking, because I mean, the, the reverse engineering of Black Lives Matter to this whole thing kind of gives you a sense of like, nothing happens in a vacuum. All these right. things happen as attached to something in the past. So what, it, what was that moment of like discovering those pieces that could potentially have been re reused or appropriated by corporations today? Well, you know, it's a it's a fascinating question. I think it happened for me in uh, the story of Net Noir. That's um, it. Yeah, Net Noir. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, David Ellington, Malcolm Cassell, um, and and what you saw there, and of course there were precursors to that, right? Which was here's the story of this thing being built and having been developed over a period of time that we call the internet, um, and for all of its life, it is almost exclusively technical in nature. It's hardware, it's software, it's pipes, people um, engaging and building um, in that way. When the time comes that folks like AOL and others are saying, look, how do we make money off of this medium? And that's, of course, what happens as we approach the, the 80s and up to the 90s is, you know, we, we open up this space, the DOD opens up, um, the the internet uh, uh, in part to try to start commercial um, uh, applications uh, with within it, and <clears throat> and folks start to say, look, um, if we're going to get people on this thing, how do we do that? How are we going to make money? How do we get right? How do people even participate? Yeah, like what what is it? You know, and what is it when people don't, the masses of people don't know what this thing is even. Um, and so the the beauty of saying, uh, someone like David who enters the picture and says, look, I know of something very old, which is called culture, and more specifically, Black cultural production, uh, something that we know Black people love, we know Everybody else loves, no matter your color, your background, your background. Um, and so that moment where he and Malcolm meet, and Malcolm has that engineering and software background, um, and a moment that crystallizes to say, "Look, AOL, you need users. You're not going to get it by um, having people show up and look at, you know, digital reproductions of the phone book." You have to have content. You have to have stuff that is exciting, that people want to see, that people mm -hmm. will stay engaged with. Um, and that's around things and that's around people. Um, and that is produced. Um, and so that moment of realization that was Malcolm, uh, David, um, uh, AOL at the time and recognizing, yeah, it's about, content. And mm -hmm. so Ed Leonsis, who recognized like, look, we're in a new era and we've got to sell this thing. And the only way to sell it um, is to have content. And so that was the, the moment for me to think about the significance of Black people and Black culture in the history of the internet. So yes, if you want to frame the internet as this technical thing, then you can have your heroes and inventors that look like the ones we all see in the history books. But if we're talking about the internet as we know it today, that had a beginning right. in Black culture. And mm -hmm. so then to cut out that moment, um, and even a very specific moment that gets closer to where, where you began, which was Afronet thrived and they built a community in this bulletin board era. And as we approached the era of the web, everybody was vying for it. CompuServe went to the folks that built Apronet and said, hey, can we, can you do your thing on our platform so that we can bring audiences to it? And that created a rift for, for some of the folks yeah. that were in Apronet because most of them said, look, why do we have to do your thing? Why don't we just do our thing and we will control it and everything would be good. But CompuServe said, well, we'd like you in our space and we'll you know, fund it and obviously we'll profit from it. Um, and so there was a recognition clearly in those moments of the power of black cultural production 
and the need for that to drive the growth of this new medium. That's right. Um, but that's, you know, something we don't really hear about so much more. No, and it's it's as recognized in the text and even in the, not not just subtly, it's it's part of the structural inequality that's pre-built into the way that the web actually operates. And that's why I really wanted to make sure that uh, I want to make sure that we talk about on this. Uh, and also, like, I want to remind um, whoever, people watching on YouTube, you could ask questions too. Uh, coming up, we'll come to your questions in just a little bit. Um, that the, the reason why I focus on content so much is because to me, it was like, that is the modern web is commodification of niche, robust, passionate communities. When, mm -hmm. when platforms purchase product, they don't purchase the tech, they can build the tech, they build, right. they buy the community, they buy the people. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, that's, it's, most people don't think of that. They're just like, oh, we're just being acquired. And it's like, no, this is the, the sharing public of that. And so when we look at origins of content and everything, it's like that you kind of imagine that if uh, Net Noir or AfroNet were there, what would have been the impetus to create the modern web? And it's, we don't think about like those types of gaps that would have occurred or what else it would have looked like. You, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's, it's an interesting point of history. And that in itself is, we're going to move towards more political parts here, but that itself yeah. is a problem that we don't focus on that history. Yeah. Yeah. We think it just sort of materialized the way it looks now and not think that it had a very specific and deliberate uh, beginning and origin uh, that had everything to do with black people and black culture. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, being the structural inequality of the system. And so your book, it, one of the moments where the po politics start leaking in is the moment of Silicon Valley and its cocaine problem. Mm -hmm. And then the crack cocaine issue of Los Angeles. And that was a moment where I was very, uh, reading between the lines there, I started thinking about what a wetware hack was and what it, well, what it meant to change culture by using pro like product external to the technology as part of that. And it's almost as if the, the, the large thumb of power that comes with the technologies saw, as, as in a Foucauldian way, saw power being increased inside of places where it wasn't in the control of the tech Silicon Valley mantra, whatever that was, which today is very male, which is very white. I mean, there's, there's uh, diversity more now than there was, but it was very much a time where it was like, was, was, the th was there a threat? Was there like, did, did Silicon Valley feel threatened by the potential of a bigger African-American presence inside of the cultural technologies that were there? No, I don't think so. There were, okay. I mean, there, there, were there were too few of us around for any threat uh, uh, to be there. But th the reason that um, I love, I mean, you know, this is one of those parts of the story, like to the end of the book, my wife was like, I still don't understand why this cocaine story is in there. And I'm like, it's staying in the book mm -hmm. over my dead body. You know? <laughs> um, but because for me, those two things were so <clears throat> intertwined in an interesting way, if nothing other than the kind of metaphorical pathway that it helped us to think about technology and technological production and its impact. Um, and so to see this sort of thread of Silicon Valley um, as this bastion of technological production, and then to sort of think about who is building in that moment, who is included, who's a part of that e ecosystem, and mostly who is left out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then to see uh, sort of the, the contours as history moves us throughout the 80s from uh, kind of a focus on Silicon Valley and this new technological revolution that's happening on through what really starts to captivate America, which is in South Central Los Angeles, and then spreading throughout the rest of the world in the crack cocaine uh, epidemic. And so for me, this was my way of thinking about, you know, let's think about how technologies get formed. Let's think about how technology is imbued with power. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe to do that, let's step outside of the internet and computing and thinking about something that we rarely think of as technology, right? So um, cocaine is a chemical technology uh, sure. in the same way that computers are uh, 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 
computing uh, technologies, right? So, so here is an analogy for me that helped tell the story of technological power mm-hmm. and uh, the sort of the, the absence, the presence, and the very deliberate ways in which power works to preserve itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as cocaine starts to make its way into South Central, takes on a very different complexion in terms of its users, and in so doing, becomes illicit in a very different way than cocaine up in Silicon Valley in all the ways that we, of course, know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a useful way for me to think about this concept of Black software in a different way. So software, in one sense, in talking about Black cultural producers that produce content that drove the, uh, the growth of the internet, But then on the other hand, software that was used and technology that gets used very deliberately to to deal with threats and real threats to power uh, that typically come from Blackness and Black people. Mm -hmm. There's been, um, so I want to switch over to the, the origin of this, the origin of your text of how you started researching through Black Lives Matter. And I think to me, I think the, the, the interlude, it's not an interlude, it's a chapter, but the interlude where it kind of escapes the technological space and goes to the cocaine story is a very important part of this because Silicon Valley is driven. I mean, it's not just a tool, not just a chemical tool for the body, but it was a tool for productivity. Like it was like, and it was almost like made a drug, like a white drug that was like, okay to do. And it was so interesting. And then, Crack cocaine became like the not okay, and then cocaine became communicified and then weaponized. And so it was very, that part is important because as we talked to Dr. Brock about, the the black body in physical space is a carceral body. You know, it's it's in in the threat of longstanding institutional racism that's built into the way the country operates. And so technology itself is... Today, I, I'm speaking more from a present, most using presentism is technology and culture are pretty interweaved at this moment. But at the at many times, points in history, they were distinctly separate by access. Who can who can actually touch the machines? Who can participate in this? And you make a very interesting note towards the end of the book about how 1994 is different than 2012. You know, they're they're different things. You could have said things you could say in 2012 probably would either not have been said or would have been said and then just not have proliferated into the mainstream. Mm. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the hashtag, like the idea of that tool, that that technique. That is a cultural artifact that is also a cultural hack into physical space that now moves and interweaves and moves between. It, it exists as a hashtag, but a movement that exists in physical space. So how do you, how do you see like that the, the technology today being very much part of like how we interact with those that liminal space between that, like the physical and the digital. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great question. I think that's the that's the traits that I could see when I started to think about Black Lives Matter. Right, it is that here is a group of people who um, marshaled a hashtag and marshaled other ways of mobilizing um, social media platforms. Twitter um, in a very big way, Facebook and others. Um, And it it struck me that that doesn't happen by accident, by a sort of casual user or even group of users who go into a space and have no sense of that ecosystem. And so what I could recognize was that there is a very real sense of both cultural and technological expertise at work Right. that produce this. And so if that is the case, then one has to ask the question where that came from and where these people sort of develop those both skills, sensibilities, et cetera. Um, and so that's where that connection I started to really kind of um, kind of look. And I think that's where that connection is in terms of that earlier question that you asked about the the sort of 80s bulletin board moment and the present, which is you had people who were very much embedded with how to create and sustain community, how to live everyday life, um, 
survive, mm-hmm. um, have pleasure, thrive, and to do so by and um, in the making of a community um, and communal bonds and so forth. And so, so you have that moment and you have that sort of as a base, and then you have increasing engagement of people with technology as it becomes available, as people have uh, access. Um, and you know, here again, I think is that critical story of folks like um, Derek and others who are entering the, the technology space and the computing space in a different way than the folks who built AfroNet mm-hmm. who had their origins in the late 70s and, and 80s. Here were people now, folks like myself, like Derek, who were saying, oh, I have this technology and I happen to be sitting uh, at a Georgia Tech or at an MIT um, and I know something about this thing and I have access to try to develop it. Right. So here I have that mashup of my impulse, my need, my sensibility to really think about community and I have access to these new tools in the ways that uh, the prior generation did not. That's right. And so those are then the people either directly connected or um, closely connected as we start to get closer uh, uh, to more, more recent history and Black Lives Matter. And so when you looked at the networks that thrived in places like Twitter, you saw a lot of young folks, you saw a lot of uh, millennials and newer generations of folks, but you also saw folks who were very much part of that early 90s -hmm. cultural production online. And those things fuse together when you have networks that come together over a period of time and interact in both real uh, or in uh, physical spaces, digital spaces. Um, And so I think that connect or that combination of technical expertise, cultural grounding in uh, community uh, is really what sort of produce uh, these kinds of uh, things that are possible today. Right. That, you know, I even think of that. It's, what's incredible is that the longitudinal connections, like there's different communities, like, and it's like almost it's a sad story because it's like the longitudinal connection is that of the structural uh, inequality that's built into it. And that's the sad and unfortunate part. It's shared. It's a shared experience between generations where I think people of privilege or access have no, not really thought of that. It's like, it's like, oh, okay, we'll just use, use this tech. And it's that, that movement comes from a combined historical experience of really bringing the past, the present together and, and recognizing that these things can't be quiet anymore. It can't be, we can't be speaking about it. It's, it's, unbelievable that it's it's never it's it feels like it never ends like we brought it up with dr brock abed arbery and like that video that comes online it's a it's horrific and it's 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 like almost like it's a problem to the point where we're just like we know we should never ever normalize it but we we're glad we almost have that longitudinal history to kind of say keep paying attention to this like black lives matter we have to keep saying it because if we don't then the systems itself kind of like grow and bubble over until it's just commodified like it's just there so it resists that so (laughs) one more question before we open audience and anybody could ask if they have it is um in the in the history of digital media um how do we bring civic awareness like to students to young people to to bring the idea of like how these moments aren't just attached to the present they're they're part of a longer history how do we bring attention to the, the the actual histories that we haven't been really like seeing in or hearing as much as we should be. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, you know I would answer it two ways, and the first is you know we simply have to make our students read history. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean it's as basic as that, but it's you know you you I'm sure face it uh, as much as I have over the years that students come into the classroom with you know, their, their history in some uh, some ways extends about the last three years or so. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so I think there, there has to be a sense in which we, we push people not to think just about the present. 
um, and to deliberately go back to the past to to read what's there um, or otherwise uh, avail ourselves to the stories that uh, were produced um, uh, in uh, the past. But I think the other is to think, uh, you know, about how students and encouraging students for how they can um, help to produce history. That is, there are people in the world and we all have stories. Mm -hmm. And all those stories extend the generations that we are connected uh, to. Um, and so thinking of ways to help push people um, think about the value of stories, the value of narrative, um, and to think about the the value of thinking about a connected timeline uh, that goes and extends back through history um, and not a sort of disconnected set of events that have nothing to do with each other. Right. And I'll, uh, I'll make a final point before uh, maybe we go to questions and so forth that this was evident to me in a very real way, uh, a moment, I guess it's uh, maybe a couple of years ago now when uh, I think it was The Intercept who had come out with a story and that story um, is an investigative piece. And it was about how they discovered that the NYPD had been using uh, uh, or taking its camera data from cameras around the city, surveillance data, um, giving it essentially to IBM for IBM to use to test and build facial recognition systems that could identify uh, people based on race and skin color. Um, and so the, the point of the piece was, number one, this shit is happening. Um, but the other one was the NYPD and IBM have been collaborating on this for five years and oh. we have it known. And I, I remember reading and, and chuckling kind of at that moment um, because I thought, yes, this is an overwhelming thing that this has been happening for five years, but you've missed the story because mm -hmm. it's not a five-year story. It's a 50-year story, right. not just broadly speaking, but a 50-year story of collaboration between IBM, the NYPD, and law enforcement to build technological products that have had the impact of further and expansively incarcerating Black and brown people. Um, and so I think stories like that that say, look, when we look to our current technological moment and thinking about the problems and challenges, we don't have to start at square zero. The problem is already something we've confronted. The answers are probably also things that we've also confronted um, and deliberated on at some point. And so we lose all of that if we don't think seriously about history and the historical connections and their relevance for us today. Thank you. You're absolutely, absolutely right. Mahab um, Ahmed says, hi, what do you think about the growing trajectory of public interest around data and digital spaces? How do you foster that interest while centering critical race theory and its intersection with tech? Uh, that's a, uh, a great question. Um, I think the, the interest is great, but I think it's only good um, if we have that critical sensibility, right? So we have and have uh, been enamored by the platforms and the power that it gives and uh, elevating and amplifying voices, um, the, the data and digital traces that are around that can help us uh, organize, let's say, or to help um, uh, push back on power uh, and so forth. But I think time and time again, when things like this erupt and uh, attention to it, we fail to think of the, the kind of long tail implications about whose data does this reflect? At the end of the day, who is going to benefit uh, from these things? Are we finding a way to think about including the people who produce this data? You know, the tendency to think and look out on the internet and say all data is there freely given, freely open to me, but someone produced that uh, and it belongs to them in some way. And so does it make sense? And is it fair to just take that and then do with it what we will? be that for good or, or for ill. Um, and so I think 
this is only good and the interest is only there if we keep in mind that all of this has a current of power that runs through it. And we must always ask ourselves in what ways are our considerations of these new spaces um, uh, and these data um, help to uh, sustain or to uh, critique power in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's one of those things that is very, like uh, in grad school, that was a lot of the, the work we did was critical data theory and then critical, like, which then led to critical race theory. But the problem I, I had personally with like my grad school experience, and not to be overly critical, except they did shut down my program. So I'm a little critical <laughs> of that, um, is that it was centered heavily on tech and data rather than the the, the ownership and like what happens to data? Where does data go? And very often, like we let, just to go back to the, the the surveillance, like surveillance is a structural problem in general. And then it becomes even more structurally pro problematic when there's now like the acceptance of that, like the normalization of that isn't like we, like people, it's become so much more problematic than it, than it is because just constantly being thought about as you know just there mm -hmm. and then stories that I, I always try to remind students of is like how much data isn't thought about like what is the data privilege of coders and so i remember when it was like i think it was the xbox connect didn't have the ability to see black and black and brown people like mm. it it couldn't detect it and i was like that's like a, a type of privilege built into those systems itself and then the the idea of what what happens to that data like what what is the thought and how much value they, that mm -hmm. somebody else is designing for that yep yep it's, it's, it's absolute questions let, let, here's an, another question coming up cindy asks how do we begin to change the conversations about these hidden racial narratives in public education does it start at the top i mean i think it starts from everywhere. Um, I mean, I think it does start at the top in terms of thinking about how we can uh, change these things and trying to understand the structural uh, ways in which we sustain um, power as it is uh, as it is given. Um, but I think the other is that we we have to avail ourselves to the people and the stories that are all around us in terms of understanding the connections between uh, technology and people. And, you know, much to what you were saying, Jamie, about, um, you know, focusing on tools, which is what we typically do when we think about technology. It's the tool, it's the tool, it's the tool. And we forget about the people and the persons. And that's in large part because that's where all of this complexity comes in. Um, and that's where all of the um, uh, the other parts of the narrative, you know, and I'm thinking about people who, um, you know, people of color who have engineering backgrounds and who enter this space from a, a lifetime of dealing with structural inequality, as you were uh, mentioning earlier, which is very much a different narrative from many other folks that are in the same position, same mm -hmm. education, same skills, that same focus on technology. But to think about someone who comes to this moment of um, technological engagement and production from a very different vantage point um, opens up the need to interrogate those stories and those narratives. And I think, um, you know, the, I think the folly in some way is for us to continue to perpetuate the idea that we can only chip away and change these things if uh, the people at the top do something. Um, and I think that's certainly there, but I think it's also incumbent upon all of us who are not in those positions to still be able to think about these narratives, these stories, and find ways to amplify and get those out so that they are in the minds of those who uh, do have an exercise uh, power. Thank you. Yeah, those are those are excellent answers. And like I, I have to agree with that. I think top down, I, unfortunately, we have these systems in play that are also part of the power structure of like Common Core, what's what has to be completed, what's for the test. And it isn't just like expecting or waiting for that to change. It's almost like we have to, I, when I was doing my research, 
I, I kept asking myself, what's missing? Like that's, it's a question that we kind of have to keep asking yourself. Like if it's only one monoculture, then something's not right. Like mm -hmm. some, there's something out there. The world doesn't exist as if it's just one line. History doesn't exist as a lightning ball. It, it's, it's all, it's the earth. It's a great, it's, a, it's orbital. And it's like, there's so much we have to think about and interrogate. And it's a lot to think about. And oftentimes it's very uncomfortable to think about, but if we don't, then we can perpetuate like these dominant narratives that like really dominate for the sake of like, kind of like selling books or like constantly, like not, not you speaking about like people from the past who have like used history to kind of le leverage their present, you know? And so it is, it is a problem of the tech industry itself, but it's also a problem of like knowledge. And so I, we, I do appreciate your writing. And of course I'll continue to use it and Dr. Brock's as well. And it's important for us to continually change this conversation so it's more open. Uh, one, if you have any more uh, statements, I would. We're going to wrap up. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug or pitch or promote, or and of course your book too? <laughs> Absolutely, there is a book. Um, uh, I should have run out and got the copy and could show, but it's uh, it's Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the AfroNet to Black Lives Matter. You can buy it anywhere. Um, that you love to buy books. And uh, I think certainly your favorite independent bookstore these days, um, uh, give them some help, uh, 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 buy a book from there. Um, but uh, you can always find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter often at C McElwain, C-M-C-I-L-W-A-I-N. Um, and so uh, hope you'll reach out. Would love to connect. Would love to uh, keep talking. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll plug the book one more time, but not for the commercial purposes. But to say, if you want the the sort of uh, at least a glimpse into the kind of ride that I had in researching and writing this book, and access to the people and their stories, um, I would say read this book, if for no other reason than to simply immerse yourself in. Uh, in a different story. Um, these uh, folks whose stories are present there will, will change your life, will change your perspective about uh, technology. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. If you are posting to social media, use the hashtag digitalvoid. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, sponsorships, and feedback.